From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voters, in Denver and Colorado Springs, your work is not done. Mayor's races in Colorado's two biggest cities are unsurprisingly headed to runoffs. We'll break down the results and the issues they illuminate. Then, those crowded mayoral contests got us wondering about ranked-choice voting. If you're not familiar with this voting method, it is exactly what it sounds like. You have multiple candidates on the ballot, you rank them in order of your preference. Here's my first choice, here's my second choice, here's my third choice. More Colorado communities are choosing this option. Why? And what are the drawbacks? Later, several eclipses are on the horizon, including a total solar eclipse about a year from now. What will you be able to see from Colorado? Plus, wildlife officials borrow a page from Weird Al Yankovic. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The state's biggest cities held elections Tuesday, Denver and Colorado Springs. And let's get right into what we know and, I suppose just as importantly, what we don't yet. We'll begin in the capital city. From Denverite, our sister publication, Kyle Harris, joins us. Good morning, Kyle. Hello. Thanks for your reporting into the night and this early turnaround. You even overcame a flat tire. It was fun. To be with us. Okay, 16 candidates running for Denver mayor. I ask this almost tongue-in-cheek. Do we have a winner? (laughs) Well, that would require more than 50% of voter support. So with 16 candidates, nobody hit that bar. Nobody hit that bar, which means a runoff June 6th, basically two months from now. Uh, So what is the matchup going to be? Well... We're still sort of figuring that out. As of Tuesday night, we had two clear leaders. There was former state Senator Mike Johnston with almost 25 percent of the vote and then Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. uh, It's former head Kelly Bruff with just over 22 percent of the vote. Lisa Calderon had just over 15 percent of the vote. And the gap between Bruff and Calderon was actually narrowing as the night went on and, and more votes were counted. I want to note that a a woman has never been mayor of Denver. And so given these early results, it remains possible that that could change this year. Absolutely, it could. Bruff is currently in second place. um, But second place candidates in the general election have won in the runoff. So back in 2011, Mm -hmm. Chris Romer had the most votes in the general election, but went on to lose against current mayor Michael Hancock. That that is the uh, the the placement after the general election is not necessarily what you get in the runoff. Fascinating. As you look at the front runners and the messages they shared with Denver voters, what can you glean about what issues resonated. Most of the candidates identified the same concerns in the city. So those included housing, homelessness, public safety. Um, Both Bruff and Johnston offered optimistic messages about Denver's future, and they were quick to release both housing and homelessness plans early in the race. And while they acknowledged that the, the city's definitely having problems, they didn't focus on doom and gloom and fear mongering. 
they offered some solutions and upbeat messages about the future. For example, Johnston said he could actually end homelessness in his first term by building tiny homes and some other strategies. Bruff hasn't made that promise, but she's proposed regional solutions. And then Calderon has pushed social housing. She's a really different candidate. She's uh, developed her homeless plan, for example, with unhoused residents, service providers, and activists. Her goal is to decentralize Denver and reduce the power of the mayor in this strong mayor city. In a strong mayor city. Now, uh, money isn't everything in politics, but Lord, it helps. (laughs) Are the leaders the most moneyed? Money continues to talk. Um, The top two candidates are big money candidates. Between the two of them, they've actually raised a million more than all the other candidates combined. A lot of that money has come to independent expenditure committees separate from the candidates that are backing them. Um, the committee backing Johnston has received money from out-of-state billionaires and DeVita's former CEO, Kent Theory. The IE that's backing Bruff has led in contributions from Denver developers, the Metro Denver Apartment Association, the National Association of Realtors, and the construction industry also. Okay, so there's Johnston and Bruff. Then there's Calderon, and she actually isn't in the top five fundraisers in the race. Councilmember Debbie Ortega, State Representative Leslie Herod, and State Senator Chris Hansen all outraised her and currently are pretty far behind in votes. So what might this say, Kyle, about the Fair Elections Fund, which was designed to level the playing field? Yeah, so the Fair Elections Fund is the thing that matches some donations nine to one with taxpayer dollars, and it was put in place to make things more equitable. This election shows that big money, again, continues to talk, and both Bruff and Johnson were able to spend Um, really big time on TV ads and on other marketing. On top of that, they also collected a whole bunch of taxpayer money. Some Denver voters are wondering whether this fair elections fund can actually serve its purpose when independent expenditure committees have so much sway. That's a fascinating question. What does turnout look like? Well, in total, voters cast around 175,000 ballots. That's according to Denver Elections. That is a 38 percent turnout. It's a drop from the abnormally high turnout in the the 2019 election, which was the last mayoral race. Uh It's around what the city saw back in 2011, which was the last time the mayor's race um, didn't have an incumbent running. As of Tuesday at midnight, there were only 65,000 ballots still to be counted. And the next batch is going to be counted uh, today at 2 p.m. 2 p.m. Denver, as we've mentioned, has a strong mayor system, but uh, voters cast ballots as well. For city council, anything stand out to you there? Well, as of the moment, there are four at-large candidates at the top. Uh, Serena Gonzalez-Gutierrez is leading, followed by Pinfield Tate and Travis Liker and then Sarah Parody in fourth place. But that's a close fourth place, and any of these four have a pretty good shot. With so many votes still to be counted, a lot could change there. Okay. Arguably the ugliest contest in Denver this cycle was around a ballot measure 2-0, dealing with the future of an important swath of undeveloped land, the Park Hill Golf Course. Remind us why this was contentious, uh, but maybe start with whether we have a result. I know we do, actually. I've I've listened to our own newscasts here. We do have a result. Um... 2-0 was defeated, which means that that land will be used as an 18-hole fee-based golf course, uh, both as mandated in the conservation easement Denver rights didn't lift and also by Westside, the developer. So there was this big fight of the conservation easement. Uh, Again, it limits how the 155 acres of the Park Hill golf course can be used. 
The easement says specifically it must be used as an 18-hole fee-based golf course. The developer said that is exactly what we're going to do. They conceded last night, and they are going to fence off the land from the public and, again, turn it back into a golf course. Thanks so much for your reporting. Thank you. That is Kyle Harris of our sister publication, Denverite, who's covering the Denver election. Coming up in the next few minutes, we'll get an update on election results in Colorado Springs. And what if you could choose multiple candidates in a crowded race? Well, that's a thing, and more Colorado communities are going in that direction. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andy Kenny from the CPR Newsroom. The state legislature is in session, and that means so is the CPR politics podcast, Purplish, everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. In Colorado Springs and Denver, there were a lot of candidates for mayor. Yet you could only vote for one, even if maybe you had a second favorite. Increasingly, though, communities are adopting ranked choice voting like Boulder, Broomfield, Fort Collins. We're going to talk about this approach with State Representative Chris Degree Kennedy, Democrat from Lakewood. He got a bill passed a few years ago to encourage more of what's also known as instant runoff voting. And Representative, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. I imagine you developed something of an elevator pitch around this system. So uh, give us that pitch, why you believe in this. Sure. So in races where there are likely to be multiple candidates running, People are often making strategic choices about who they want to vote for rather than just choosing their favorite candidate. Or often you'll have candidates from a faction split the vote among a certain community such that the person who wins does not have 50 percent of the vote. Ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting is a solution to make sure that whoever wins the election has a majority of the vote. Now, you call this instant runoff voting because you don't wait for the runoff to happen weeks later. Uh, There's a redistribution then based on first, second. I mean, how many choices do you get? Uh, You can have several choices. It depends on how the ballot is structured. It's commonly five or more. So take a look at the Denver race where there are 16 candidates. Everyone could rank their first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice candidate. And once they start tallying the results, if no one has more than 50 percent, they take the lowest vote getter and redistribute their votes to that candidate's second choice. Now, it's important that the bill you sponsored had to do very specifically with nonpartisan races. Uh, And I know this is based on your own experience in Lakewood. Uh, Tell us about that. Sure. So for nonpartisan municipal races, it's often very easy to get on the ballot. Sometimes you only need 25 signatures to get on the ballot, which leads to situations with multiple different candidates competing and splitting the vote. For partisan races, it's a different deal because you either have to get nominated by an assembly or collect a much larger number of petitions to get onto the ballot. That is to say, where the bar is low to get on the ballot, you think this works best because there's not that sort of vetting process through a primary. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, Where do you think this has worked best? I mean, there are communities that do it. There are entire states, aren't there? Uh, Sure. So it's been done differently in different states. Recently, we've heard about the Alaska model where it's a top four nonpartisan primary where the top four candidates advance regardless of their party. And so you could have a situation with two Democrats in the runoff, two Republicans in the runoff, or a combination of other candidates. I think that that's a new experiment, and I'm (laughs) eager to see how that goes with time. But I really do think in the nonpartisan municipal races, 
especially like this Denver mayoral contest, you had so many people trying to decide who they wanted to vote for, but not knowing if the candidate that they supported was really viable to make it into the runoff. And so this is a perfect example of where ranked choice voting would be ideally applied. Now, let me raise a concern with you about ranked choice voting. And let's use the Denver or the Colorado Springs races as an example. What will now happen is that voters get some time to focus on two top candidates and and participate in a second election, right? The runoff election. It was a bit unwieldy to try to keep track of 16 candidates' positions in Denver, for instance. And now the spotlight is on two people. They get to debate one against the other. Uh, there, There is indeed this kind of narrowing and focusing. Wouldn't uh, instant runoff voting rob us of that time and opportunity? Sure. I think that that's a really good point about the value of a runoff like Denver and and Carter Springs structure it now. But I would say that what you don't have clarity on is whether the two candidates that are in the runoff are the ones that actually had the most support. So this is not a judgment on what actually happened in the Denver mayoral election, but you could have a situation where the candidates that make it into the runoff each have, say, 15 percent of the support, where 70 percent of the electorate preferred someone else. And so then, sure, you have that vigorous debate between those two. But are they really representative of the diversity of views in the city? I hear you saying this is a trade-off. That's right. Do you think that's true? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I looked at the sponsorship of your bill uh, to kind of pave the way for more of this ranked choice voting, I don't think I saw a single Republican name on it. What would explain that? Is, is, is this favorable for the party in power, which is true of the Democrats in Colorado? There were actually a few Republicans that were planning to vote yes on the bill, but they were frustrated about how we were paying for it. And so the way we fund elections in Colorado is business licensing fees pay for the elections division at the Secretary of State's office. And so because we had to develop a new risk limiting audit protocol and some other software options to implement ranked choice voting in Colorado, there was a risk that we would have had to have raised business licensing fees. And that's why some of the Republicans voted against the bill. Okay. So you think this was more about the money than about the fundaments of the system? I think that's right. I'm not speaking for the majority of the Republican Party, but there were certainly some Republicans who supported ranked choice voting in concept. Uh, How would this work if I wanted this in my community, uh, as it appears folks in Boulder and Broomfield and Fort Collins do? Where would one begin? Call your city councilor. Say, why aren't you working on this? You know, I'm having conversations with my Lakewood city councilors right now about whether they want to consider making this change in the future. And I think that those discussions are happening. And, you know, every city does this differently with their process. They could vote on it by council or they could refer a question to the voters of their city to decide whether to change that voting system. I see. That is, it could be moved by popular vote or it could be moved by an active city council, you're saying. What about countywide? Would you have, are there nonpartisan races countywide? I realize I should probably know that. There, there are not. All, there the, not. all the countywide elections are partisan. Okay. So we're truly mostly talking about municipal elections in sure. Colorado. And I would say that the other nonpartisan races that we're likely to see are school board elections or the RTD district elections. So you could imagine a world where 
you use ranked choice voting for those kinds of elections. I think it's also worth noting that single member districts versus multi-member districts are an important distinction here. There's an alternative form of ranked choice voting for multi-winner districts called single transferable vote. It's kind of the analog to instant runoff voting. But the, it's it's untested in different ways, and I think that uh, there's a reason I didn't include it in my 2021 bill. I think it needs more thought before we know how to implement that. Before we let you go, do you need new voting equipment to proceed with this? And, and I ask that in the context of all of the false accusations of voter fraud. Uh, those were indeed false, but they did kind of undermine some confidence in the system. Uh, is this the right time to change a system if you need new equipment or new procedures, you know? You don't need new equipment, but you absolutely need new software and new procedures. So the voting equipment used by 62 of Colorado's 64 counties is made by Dominion. Dominion does have a ranked choice voting plug-in. The other two counties are on clear ballot systems where they have a ranked choice voting module in development. Okay, so there are some changes necessary, but I guess you wouldn't call it an overhaul? I I would not call it an overhaul. I would say that there are a lot of things that have to be done differently. Say, for example, there's a city that spans between two counties. Each county could not finalize the vote by themselves. They would have to integrate their data together Uh so that you could find out who the lowest vote getter is before redistributing their votes. Oh, yes. I think about those unwieldy cities. They're in multiple counties. Uh, So that adds some complication. Uh, Representative, thanks so much for helping us understand this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Democratic State Representative Chris Degree Kennedy of Lakewood, he got a bill passed a few years back to encourage more ranked choice voting in Colorado, also known as instant runoff. We talked about the concept given the giant field we saw in the Denver and Colorado Springs mayoral races. Again, both appear headed for a runoff. And let's indeed hear more about the Springs now, which held an election for mayor and city council. Voter Vanessa Barton dropped her ballot off downtown. It was easier than putting a stamp on it and kind of hoping that it makes it to the right space. I wanted to make sure it actually got into the ballot box and my vote counts. As of this morning, political newcomer Yemi Mobilati is in first place. It's a closer contest for second between Wayne Williams and Sally Clark. KRCC's Abigail Beckman joins us from the Springs. Hi, Abigail. Hey, Ryan. A dozen candidates were in the mayor's race there. And since none of them crossed the 50 percent threshold, there will indeed be a runoff. How solid are the leads for the top two? Well, all of these runoff um, results are rather all of these results are still unofficial. But right now it's a safe bet that Yemi Mobilati will be one of the candidates in that runoff election. Mobilati is a local businessman. He's also been a pastor. Now, it's harder to say who his opponent will be as the numbers are pretty tight between Wayne Williams and Sally Clark. Both of them have been active in the Colorado Springs political world for a while. So the runoff election will be held on May 16th. And yesterday, my colleague Jess Hazel spoke with voter Chris Binkley as he dropped his ballot off. It's time for a new younger face, someone who represents a younger generation and a better future for our city and our state. And it looks like Binkley could get a fresh face with Mobilati or maybe not with Clark or Williams. We'll really just have to see. What have these three cited as their top priorities? I mean, I'm curious what these picks say about you know, like what's on voters' minds and where Colorado Springs is headed. 
Yeah. And that's somewhere where our voter guide will come in really handy. You can find the candidates' answers to our questionnaires at krcc.org. And we also have updated tallies of the vote there. Mobile Latte lists, lists safety, growth, and the economy as priorities. Very similar issues for Williams, who is a former Secretary of State, among other things. He talks a lot about collaboration as well. And Sally Clark adds tackling homelessness to a list of similar issues. I'd say they all recognize Colorado Springs as a growing place and say there's a need to channel that energy properly. It was not just the mayoral race with a large slate of candidates, was it, Abigail? Yeah, that's right. So the mayor's office was on the ballot, along with three at-large seats on city council and one city council district seat. It's five openings, 25 people threw their hats in the ring, all told. So it's been quite a busy election. But is it unusual to have so many people run in these races in Colorado Springs? Well, it's been a little more than a decade since Colorado Springs voters decided to move to a strong mayor form of government. That term strong mayor isn't a measure of effectiveness. It's more of a distinction of political power and authority. Hmm. A strong mayor is elected directly by voters and typically has more power than a weak mayor who's often appointed by elected city council and then shares responsibilities with multiple governing bodies. In the city's first strong mayoral election that was in 2011, there were eight candidates and there was a runoff. The next had six candidates and again, a runoff. That's when current outgoing Mayor John Southers won. In the last election when he ran again, the field was a bit smaller and there wasn't a runoff that time. Okay, so clearly a sign of energy this cycle. 11 candidates running for city council at large seats with no runoff. Top three winners get those seats. What do we know about the results? With the data that we have right now, it appears the newly elected councilors will be David Lineweber, who has the most votes, followed by Lynette Crow Iverson and Brian Risley. All of them got around 15 percent of the vote so far. Before we let you go, there's been some criticism, including an active lawsuit against the city of Colorado Springs, about not only the timing of municipal elections, but that there are no in-person voting options. Uh, Part of that criticism is related to historically low voter turnout. Did people show up this time? Well, I did some research on the city's website and found that going uh, back as far as the data would let me to 1995, with the exception of one election, less than half of registered voters in Colorado Springs, sometimes far less than half, have participated in city elections. Right now, it looks like about a third of active registered voters in the Springs participated, so not a lot. These contests have always been held in the spring, and the racial discrimination lawsuit you mentioned says that, quote, it massively disadvantages Hispanic and Black residents. It says on average only about 16 percent of the city's non-white registered voters participate in April off-year elections. That's half of white voter turnout and a fraction of the typical white voter turnout for November elections. We don't have a lot of data about how the mail ballot system affects turnout in Colorado Springs. But most of the criticism is that the differences between the different election cycles can be really, really confusing. Abigail, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. From KRCC, our sister station, Abigail Beckman, updating election results in Colorado Springs. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with why you might want to have your eyes on the skies. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and indeed KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to. 
a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. It's one of nature's most spectacular shows, a total solar eclipse. And we are going to help you plan. This time next year, April 8th, 2024, the daytime sky will go dark across a swath of North America. Astronomer Doug Duncan of Boulder has chased eclipses for decades. He will indeed tell us what to expect next April, and we'll talk about a smaller event happening just a few months from now. Doug, welcome back. It's great to be back, Ryan. Share an eclipse memory or two with us, given how many you've seen. Like, what goes on around you? What does it feel like? It is unbelievably awesome, Ryan. I have never met in my whole life anyone who has seen a total eclipse who forgets it until their dying day. And that's because it looks like the end of the world. It is scary fun, okay? (laughs) I mean, a lot of people have seen a partial eclipse, and that's interesting. You know, the moon covers part of the sun. If you protect your eyes, it looks like a little crescent. It's not, not the whole sun. But when the rest of the sun disappears, the world transforms. Okay, let me try and set the scene, okay? Okay. It takes more than an hour for the moon to slowly move across the sun. And for like the first 50 minutes, you don't notice too much. But then about 10 minutes before totality, the sun loses all its power. So you're standing there in the sunlight, but it isn't warming you. And then it gets colder and colder. And then a few minutes before the total eclipse, all the shadows of the world get super sharp. The sun isn't the regular big sun. It's like a very small source of light, like a spotlight Mm. on a movie set. And everybody's in the spotlight and it starts to look weird and it's cold. And then uh, a minute before uh, the totality, you can see Venus and you can see Jupiter. You can see the bright planets and then bam, it gets dark. But not just nighttime dark. It's, it's like a deep twilight and you look up in the sky and where the sun used to be is the darkest black hole you've ever seen. And you do that with glasses? No. No. As soon as the sun is gone. When totality occurs. Yeah, take off the glasses and you just glory in oh, what's wow. overhead. And there's pink flames around the edge of the sun and big silver streamers crossing the sky and people lose it. People start to scream, they start to cry, uh, they start to applaud. And it's not only people that lose it, animals do strange things. I was in Bolivia at a total eclipse and we're looking during totality, all looking at the sun and some lady shouts, look down, look down. And we look around, we're surrounded by llamas. In 1999, we were in the Galapagos for a total eclipse on a little boat. Five minutes before totality, just as it started to get weird, every whale and dolphin in the vicinity surfaced and they cruised back and forth. They watched the darn eclipse with us. And after totality, when the sun came back, they all went away. So it was mammals of different sorts watching the (laughs) eclipse. Mammals of different sorts, indeed. How long does totality last? So it depends on which eclipse. In 2017, I think some of our listeners were were wise and fortunate enough to go up to, to Wyoming. Yes. And that was two and a half minutes. Totality over Texas in 2024 will be four and a half minutes. My goodness. Of glorious totality. Almost like twice as long. So what will we be able to see from Colorado a year from now? 
And well, I guess w- with you invoking Texas, that gives me some sense that it will be more awesome there. You know, it's... it's I don't very... often say that things are more awesome yeah, in, Texas in Texas than Colorado. Um, here, 70% of the sun will be covered in Colorado. Okay. So that'll be pretty similar to 2012. There was a similar eclipse here. Um in 2017, I think it was about 90% in Denver. So it'll be pretty similar to that. And it's really interesting when three quarters of the sun is gone. If you have special eclipse watching glasses that are a thousand times darker than normal sunglasses, they will protect your eyes. And you can see the moon take a little bite out of the sun. Yeah. And over the course of an hour, a little bit more, you'll see a lot of the sun covered over, but you got to protect your eyes. So do I assume then that Texas is the closest place for the total? Uh, it is. The shadow of the moon is about 100 miles in diameter, but uh, the moon's moving and the earth is turning. And so that big circular shadow sweeps across the country and it traces out a stripe. And so it goes through Texas, Arkansas, Indiana, goes all the way to New Hampshire. But I think the weather is better in Texas in April than in New Hampshire. I mean, Texas is not a small state either. <laughs> so no. we we're speaking uh, in rather generic terms. Yeah, here. it's going about a mile north of Austin. It's going to graze, it's going to hit Dallas. Um, so it's kind of going northeast, sweeping through Texas. Before the advent of astronomy, what did ancient civilizations think was going on during an eclipse? And m- maybe how do we know that? Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow. Way to catch yeah. yourself. <laughs> um, no, it really does look a lot like the end of the world. You know, I mean, everybody knows both intellectually and intuitively that we depend on the sun for life. Um, but this is an emotional, powerful thing. I yeah. can tell you for myself, I mean, the Chinese thought it was a dragon eating the sun. Um, in central, in, in South America, it was a puma. It was a mountain lion eating the sun. In fact, when I was in Bolivia, our, our, uh, Bolivian bus driver, right during totality, started whispering, El Gato, El Gato. He, yeah. The there, there's a puma eating the sun. All the hair on the back of my neck stands up during a total eclipse because the subconscious is so powerfully affected. The sun is gone. This is Bad. This is very bad. Mm. Actually, m- mentioning pumas, the only other time the hair stood up on my neck involuntarily was I was hiking and I came around a corner and accidentally saw a mountain lion. An actual puma. An actual uh-huh. puma way too close. And your, your, your subconscious just instantly when something is very bad or weird goes, whoa, and that happens during an eclipse. I'm so glad, too, that earlier you invoked temperature, that it gets colder, of course, because yeah. the sun is not just light but heat. There's another kind of eclipse, the annular eclipse, not to be confused with annual. Uh, one of those is going to happen in just a few months, October 14th. What is right. it? So it turns out that the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a perfect circle. It's a little bit oval. So the moon can be further or closer to us. And of course, when it's further, it looks a little smaller. When it's closer, it looks a little bigger. All the hype about a supermoon is when the moon's 3% bigger. Okay. (laughs) But it turns out that's a critical 3% because when the moon is 3% smaller, it isn't quite big enough to cover the sun. 
So in October 14 of this year, if you're down in New Mexico, that's central for this eclipse, but the sun won't disappear. There'll be a thin ring of light, a ring of fire, all the way around the moon because the moon isn't big enough to cover the sun. Huh. So you can't take your eclipse-watching glasses off or anything. Um, that's a ring of fire eclipse, but it's not a total eclipse. A ring of fire eclipse. Yeah. Okay, so, so Johnny Cash. I, I think a bunch of our listeners probably went to Wyoming in 2017, and I would encourage you, whether you saw that and you know what's coming, or if you didn't especially, get yourself to Texas. You know, I'm bringing 800 people to totality over Texas, but whether they come with me or come with their own or whether they camp, make a plan. If you can drive there, I promise you, you will never, ever forget a total eclipse of the sun. Part of the difficulty is the getting out afterwards with so many people oh, flocking a- to one spot. Absolutely. You know? That's why when I take people there, we already have our hotel booked for an extra night. And we're going to stay because it was 14 hours to come back on I-25 from Wyoming. So be prepared. Uh, Everybody's going to go see it if they can. I like how practical and heavenly this has been. Thanks, Doug. A pleasure, Ryan. Astronomer Doug Duncan, former director of the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder, where he also taught. Still to come, a message wildlife officials are tired of saying. So now they're singing it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In Colorado's subalpine areas, you might spot a greenish-gray toad hanging out in shallow waters, sporting a white stripe on its back. Each boreal toad is further distinguished by its own belly pattern, as unique as a fingerprint. You won't hear the boreal toad croak, as it doesn't have the vocal organ to make that sound, but you might hear this delicate chirp. Instead of drinking, the toad absorbs water through a patch on its skin, and that can be infected by a fungus that's depleting amphibian populations worldwide. The boreal toad was once common in the southern Rocky Mountains, but has declined drastically over the past few decades. A hundred toads are now in the Denver Zoo's care in a conservation effort to restore the animal in the southern Rockies. With thanks to biologist Danita Weeks, this is a Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. The creatures of our world have a lot to say. Our planet crackles with conversation and sound. But for hundreds of millions of years, life was silent. Not a peep, nor buzz, nor chirp. The remarkable evolution of animal sounds is the subject of a new book, Sounds Wild and Broken. The author is biologist David George Haskell, who wrote much of it while living in Boulder. David, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Brian. We were just listening to your recording of the rainforest in Ecuador, a cacophony of creatures. I'm curious, what was the first living thing to communicate using sound, at least that we know of. (laughs) Yeah, and the the important distinction is communicative sound versus other sounds, because of course, right from the get-go, even the first microscopic single-celled beings were making tiny little sound waves as they moved around, and the first animals swimming in the oceans, that their 
their flippers, their feet, their teeth were all making incidental sounds. But mm. communicative sound, as you indicated, took a very, very long time to evolve. The first direct physical evidence that we have for communicative sound on planet Earth is a fossil of a insect wing. This is an insect that lived 270 million years ago. And on the fossilized remains of that wing, you can see a tiny little ridge with lots of little bumps on it. And those ridges and bumps are just like the ridges and bumps of modern insects, say katydids and crickets, that when they're rubbed together, when the wing, the base of the wings rub, it makes a little chirping or rasping sound. So as far as the fossil evidence goes, this is the first direct physical evidence. Of course, there may have been communicative sounds before that. We just haven't found the the, the smoking gun, if you like, the, the, the imprint in the stone that, that tells paleontologists that this was a structure at this particular time. Okay, so 270 million years ago, you say, and you write in the book, when we hear crickets in the park, we are transported to the first days of song on earth. I have to say, I'll never think of crickets the same way, David. <laughs> well, that's my hope for listening in deep time is, is asking questions about the you know, ages past, of course, is interesting for its own right, but also it reframes the experience of the everyday. When you know that insect sounds were some of the first terrestrial sounds, you, when you hear the crickets and the katydids in late summer, you, you have a different experience of that. These are very ancient, august lineages of sound, and then birds are, are much more recent. And then what we're doing now, which is using the human voice to communicate one with, it, with another, is much, much more recent. So every sound has a story behind it. And an evolution. So have you given much thought to how creatures, big and small, single-celled and multi, communicated before communicative sound? Is it, it does beg the question of what came before sound. Yes. And in fact, most of the other senses came before sound. So uh, early in animal evolution, even you know, 500 million years ago, there were animals with pretty complicated eyes and chemical sensors. And, and even before multicellular animals evolved, there were single-celled beings that were communicating through chemical exchange, a little chemical zipping back and forth from one cell membrane to another. So chemical communication, probably tactile communication and mm -hmm. visual communication were all there early on. And so it begs a question, why did sound take so long? And of course, in the depths, the misty depths of time, it's sometimes hard to, to discern cause and effect. But it seems very likely that the, the cost of making sound is what kept the lid on song and calls and oh. other forms of communicative sound. The cost of sound in terms of being eaten. So predators right from the get-go, whether they were the first fish, trilobites, lobster-like beings in the, in the early oceans, all had little sensors on their bodies that could detect sound waves, particularly low-frequency sound waves. And the, these sensors are present still on, on modern-day animals. And in fact, that's what we're using when we hear little tiny hairs in the coils of our inner ears are descended directly from those sensors on, on the first animals to evolve on this planet. And so right from the get-go, hearing was pretty well developed. And that meant that making a sound was very costly. You might end up at someone else's lunch. So sound making only really got going when flight evolved or when solid defenses or other kinds of ways of, of 
avoiding the predation costs of making a sound. When those developed, sound happened. And it's no no accident, I think, that some of the first fossils of sound-making creatures that we know of are of flying beings, particularly flying insects, because those flying insects could get away from a spider or a, a scorpion or some other predator that was was honing in on their homing in on on their sounds. That's fascinating. So you needed both <laughs> to be able to make a sound and then escape when you made it, and flight's a good way to do that. Yes, and today, even today, you think about which creatures in the world make sound, which sing. Yeah. Frogs, well, they can jump away, but salamanders, their relatives, are totally silent. Snails, worms, jellyfish, pretty defenseless and slow. They're all silent. Birds, wolves humans you know we can we can run away and so being being agile and or having chemical defenses all of these things help sound making flourish did you see that news recently that mushrooms may be communicating to each other through electric signals did you see that yes fascinating <laughs> study where where a researcher put put electrodes in mushrooms and then measured the electrical uh, the electrical gradients that were, were happening within that. And what, what he found was that every few hours, these mushrooms send up a little spike of electrical energy. And so, you know, you see a lot sort of flat line or a little buzz and then a spike and a spike. And what that means is the membranes within the, the, the fungus, a bit like the, the, the nerve cells in our bodies, have, have a rapid exchange of charged particles across them. So the next step, though, is not just to know that, well, they're making these electrical signals, but is to analyze the temporal pattern of those signals and to compare them to human language. And this study found that the, the, the signals were arranged into word-like organizations that mm. followed particular patterns. Now, what these words and these high-level structures mean for the fungi, we do not know. But certainly that kind of structure is strongly indicative of a language in the same way that, for example, in the 1960s, when the first good recordings of whale sounds, like the famous humpback whale sounds that, that, were, uh, that Roger Payne and some of his colleagues put out in the 1960s as, a, as an LP, well, those whale sounds aren't just randomly produced. No, they follow this amazing hierarchy. Uh, where the, there are patterns and groupings on the level of minutes and hours and even days. And so they're, they're constructed in the same way that songs or symphonies are constructed within the human realm. And, you know, with the whales, we still don't know really what they're communicating to one another. Uh, and, and the same is true for the fungi. But I do think, you know, looking at the mold in the back of your fridge or a beautiful <laughs> fungus, a fungus growing out on a ponderosa pine out in the woods, we should have a new appreciation for the complexity and the the possibility within fungal life. You point out that when an animal adapts to a particular environment, uh, that it's true of the sounds they make as well. So why don't we play a recording you made in Colorado? What struck you when you first heard an elk bugle like that? <laughs> well, you know, I first heard it, of course, up up in the Rocky Mountains, mm -hmm. and I was just astonished at how high pitched this sound is. Uh, and if you draw a graph of the size of mammals against the sound, the frequency of the sound that they're making, big 
mammals generally make lower pitched sounds the same way a cello sounds much lower pitched than a violin does. It's a general physical rule that big things make deeper sounds. And yet the elk has broken that rule. It's, it's singing at the frequency that is at about the same what you'd expect from a rabbit. So here you have a, a rabbit-like <laughs> voice emerging from one of the, the most large and impressive majestic creatures that we have in, in North America, at least on, on land. And why is that? It's because the, the sound of the wind in the mountains has impressed itself through evolution into the voice of the elk. The Rocky Mountains are some of the loudest forests in the world when the wind is blowing through them. Mm -hmm. when, when the wind gusts through the spruce and the fir at higher elevations or down in the Ponderosa Pines, the, a great roar emerges because the needles are so stiff. The needles are, are adapted to heavy loads of snow and ice, and so they're extremely stiff compared to needles of, say, pines out in California that have a much easier life. And the trees in the Rockies have a completely different form that is based on the architecture of their twigs and their needles, which makes them extremely loud when even a slight gust of wind blows through them. That means that every animal in those forests has to deal with this masking band of low-frequency sound. It's almost like being in the middle of a busy city. There's so much like rumbling going on. So what does the elk do? It sings at a frequency that is higher than the low mire of sound that, that, that surrounds it. The same is true for other birds like the red crossbills that, that uh, wander around the mountains looking for, for seed crops and breed in, in the spring and early summer. They too have songs that are higher pitched than you would expect for a bird of their size. Right. And, and these sounds of the Rockies were one of the most impressive demonstrations for me of a, of a more general rule in evolution, and that is that every animal's voice is adapted to its particular place, its home. Birds that live on the seashore, for example, sing and call to one another in a way that isn't interfered with too much by the, the sound of waves. Of waves, right. I mean, this to me was mind-blowing. I mean, we, we think, of course, as so much of nature being interconnected, but the idea in a way that an elk's vocal cords would have somehow adapted based on the sorts of trees and wind in its environment. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, it's really a thing of beauty. And my mind kept being blown as I read, sounds wild and broken. Uh, so you indeed wrote much of this book while you were living in Boulder and there are multiple recordings from Colorado. You climbed to 13,000 feet on Mount Audubon in the Indian Peaks Wilderness to record the white-crowned sparrows. What did you notice about these songs? Well, the great thing, well, once you catch your breath, because of course, <laughs> once you climb up to 12, 13,000 feet, you're feeling that, or at least I am feeling the lack of oxygen up there. These birds seem unaffected, and of course, their, their blood and physiology is adapted to living up there. They live right there at Timberline, and every individual singing has its own voice. And if you just sit down on, on the side of the trail, which I did quite a lot to catch my breath, you can identify individual males by the pattern of the song that they're singing. Some have a little extra whistle or a flourish, or they start a little higher or lower than the others. And white-crowned sparrows 
a very distinctive, and even someone who's not particularly tuned to listening to birds can pick this up very easily. So we hear individual distinctiveness, and that's partly because the birds are very creative as they're learning their songs, they're picking up things, and, and kind of like jazz musicians coming up with their own riff, and then that riff becomes their signature song for the rest of their lives. But the other really cool thing about white-crowned sparrows is they also live up in Alaska. Some of them live down on the coast in California. Some live uh, further, further south in, in New Mexico. They have regional dialects. And so they have a, <laughs> a, a vocal culture the same way that, say, when I'm speaking, you can hear that I'm not originally from North America. Right? I grew up, I grew up in, in France, in Paris. So I have uh, English parents. And so I have a, sort of an accent that locates me to a particular geography. The same is true for these birds is because they get their songs through vocal learning. There are cultural forces at play. They sound different, not because they're different genetically. And in fact, if you take an egg from Colorado and switch it with an egg from California, mm -hmm. the Californian little egg, when it hatches out into baby bird, would learn to sing like a Coloradan and the same thing with the reciprocal transplant. You are saying that there are valley girl sparrows, I think, <laughs> partly. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing the book with us, David. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. I wish you many great sounds this spring. Biologist David George Haskell is a professor at the University of the South. We spoke last April about his book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. We will end today's show with a plea. Do not feed the wildlife. Yet no matter how often Colorado Parks officials say it, people keep doing it. So instead, wildlife managers now are singing it with a series of musical parodies. Hey Jude, don't feed the elk. You'll make them sick and change their habits. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I'm begging of you, please don't feed wildlife. Imagine no one fed wildlife It isn't hard to do Don't leave feed for the elk now Let them search for their food Go on, go on, go on Here we are now With some breadcrumbs I feel stupid Okay, did you recognize those twists on Hey Jude, Jolene, Imagine, and Smells Like Teen Spirit here by Nirvana? If the songs don't work, maybe the fines will. Feeding deer, elk, mountain goats, bighorn sheep, not to mention lions and bears, results in a $100 fine. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that you can feed. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Disappointed there's no election night pizza left in the break room fridge. 
You're with CPR News and KRCC.